You're listening to a Women's History Association of Ireland podcast. In this podcast, a recording of Comanamon, the Anglo-Irish Treaty and the Split, 1922, a symposium. This online event, a collaboration between UCD Gender Studies and the Women's History Association of Ireland, was organised by Dr. Mary McAuliffe and funded by UCD Decadive Centenaries. The symposium took place on February 25th, 2022. The speakers were Dr. Leanne Lane from Dublin City University, who gave a paper entitled I Care Not If I Take More of Your Time Than You Are Willing to Give, Mary McSweeney and the Treaty Debates, Dr. Margaret Ward from Queen's University Belfast gave a paper entitled Come and Amon Debates the Treaty, Dr. Mary McAuliffe from ECD spoke on Sister Against Sister, Come and Amon and Come and Assyria, 1922-1923, and Professor Katrina Beaumont from London South Bank University, who spoke on Common Amon, the Anglo-Irish Treaty and Women's Contribution to the New Irish State, My Grandmother's Story. The symposium was chaired by Dr. Fanula Walsh from UCD School of History. My name is Fanula Walsh. I'm a lecturer in the School of History at University College Dublin, um, and it's a great privilege to chair this um, symposium. Um, the symposium is titled Common Amon, the Anglo-Irish Treaty and the Split, 1922. On February 5th, 1922, the Cumanaman Convention was held in Dublin, consider its response to the Anglo-Irish Treaty. The executive of the organisation had already rejected the treaty, as had all six women TDs. Cumanaman was the first major militant organisation to meet on the treaty and the first to publicly split. Out of that split came an anti-treaty Cumanaman were actively militant during the Civil War and a pro-treaty women's organisation titled Cumanaman founded to support the Cumann Gael government and the Irish Free State Army. This symposium considers the important discussions, debates, impacts and legacies of that split for political women and for women more broadly in the Free State. It's a reminder that, as many historians have pointed out recently, civil wars not just pit brother against brother, but also very much involved women, um, and indeed that women were um, um, very involved in the initial response to the treaty um, and were greatly affected um, by the fallout of all that ensued afterwards. We have um, a panel of um, four absolutely um, cutting-edge excellent historians here to discuss these, these issues with us today. Um, Dr. Leanne Lane, Dr. Margaret Ward, Dr. Mary McAuliffe and, and Professor Katrina Bowment. This symposium is, is organised by Dr. Mary McAuliffe um, from the UCD Centre for Gender and Feminism um, um, Sexualities um, in UCD um, and it is um, organised with the support of the UCD Decadive um, Centenaries Funding um, the Women's History Association of Ireland um, and with um, Oroctus um, TV Decca Centenaries programming. Um, and we're very grateful today for the technical support of Mike Liffey from Real Smart um, Media. Um, so just so our very first speaker um, is Dr. Leanne Lane um, from DCU. Um, she's a lecturer in the School of History and Geography um, and she is an author, the author of Rosamond Jacob, Third Person Singular. She's going to speak to us today on I Care Not If I Take More of Your Time when, That You're Willing to Give, Mary McSweeney and the Treaty Debates. Um, over to you, Leanne. So thank you, Fanula, and thank you very much to Mary for the invitation to speak. By her own admission, Mary McSweeney was no longer a young woman when her brother Terence died in Brixton Jail on the 25th of October 1920. Yet it was from this period onwards that she began to assume a progressively more important role in Irish politics, tentatively at first, as many of the male politicians saw her only as a mourning sister, while others such as de Valera were circumspect about the merits of women in the political arena. 
A summer uh, inflated report on her reception in America during the period of her 1920-1921 tour read, quote, Miss Maxvini has risen during the few months she has been in America from comparative obscurity to one of the most widely known women in the country and has been accorded receptions in nearly 100 American cities that can be compared only with those given great world leaders, end quote. Taking de Valera's place and leading the band drive was at his special request, as Maxvini reminded him in July 1921. Recalling the request, she stated that she, quote, obeyed as a soldier of Ireland, though only a woman. While in America, Maxvini was elected unopposed to the second doll, one of four representatives, one of four Sinn Féin representatives for Port City. On the 16th of August, 1921, that first meeting of that doll was held in the mansion house in Dawson Street. Maxvini actually wasn't present. She was traveling back from America. But in that same week as the first meeting of the second doll was held, uh, a collection of essays by Terence Maxwini dedicated to the soldiers of freedom in every land uh, was published by Talbot Press. Terence Maxwini's death for his political principles informed his sister's response to the instructions given to the plenipotentiaries, the guarantees demanded and the treaty that ensued. Maxwini returned repeatedly to his writings and his words permeated and suffused hers as she stood often to male ridicule and sniggering resolutely and indefatigably, uh, quote, for a republic that cannot die. Ireland would not, she declared at a speech in Cork in September 1921, quote, lower the flag for which our martyrs have died. Rather than just dismiss Mary Maxwini as one-dimensional in her opposition to the treaty and in her continued political intractability, it is necessary to understand why she was increasingly viewed as, in the words of Sean McConville, a termagant. The effects of the trauma Maxwini suffered as witness to her brother's death can be gleaned from the rare outbursts of emotion she exhibited in the Dáil Chamber during the treaty debates. Mary Maxwini stood up to speak on the treaty at 4.25pm on the 21st of December 1921, concluding at exactly seven o'clock. Maxwini had spoken for, as the independent, uh, the Irish independent journalist, Roger de Burke, noted she had spoken for precisely the same length of time as the five penitentiaries had taken with their combined speeches. She was aware of the growing mood of frustration within the chamber, but she defied the irritation of her audience. It is no use for you to look at your watches, go out if you like, she said. I care not and apologise not if I take more of your time than you are willing to give. There were those, of course, who praised her. Sean O'Kelly declared that her address, quote, not only vindicates the far-flung movement for women's rights, but places Miss Maxweeney in the highest ranks of the greatest orators of our race, end quote. Mary Maxweeney watched as her brother died, uh, uh, as, she, as her brother starved to death over a 74-day period in 1920. Terence Maxini was five feet nine and a half inches, and he weighed 136 pounds on arrival in Brexton prison. In his coffin, a number of years, a number of months later, his body appeared uh, like that of uh, a child of 12. Uh, in his Bureau of Military History witness statement, Michael O'Donoghue, who formed part of the IRA Guard, of honour when Terence Maxwini reposed, when the body of Terence Maxwini reposed in the City Hall in Cork, recalled that beneath the glass cover lay the shrunken corpse, the face small, pinched, but very serene. The most striking feature of the body was its smallness, like that of a child of 12. The folds of the uniform piteously accentuated the mummy-like contour of the corpse, 
from the parchment pallor of the face and hands, it seemed as if the whole body had not alone been drained of blood, but dehydrated as well. So this is something that McSweeney witnessed. She witnessed her brother go from a fairly healthy um, individual um, to uh, looking like a child of 12 in his coffin. Mary McSweeney's role was not that of a passive worried sister sitting by her brother as he lay on his prison bed. Prison visits were combined with visits to government officials and embassies. She lobbied trade union officials and the medical officers in Brixton. This cannot have been anything other than tiring and stressful, particularly as the days passed and Terence inched closer to death. While Arthur Brian had the political contacts and presence in London, it was Mary McSweeney who uh, spearheaded the campaign to support Terence uh, and garner maximum publicity with a view to affecting his release. Her refusal to adopt a supplicatory position in her dealings with prison staff, the medical officers who attended her brother, and government officials such as Sir Ernie Lee Blackwell and Sir Edward Short meant that she came across as a difficult woman who did not know her place. She was, of course, a sister who was fighting for the life of a beloved brother. There was a gendered dimension to the derision and scorn that McSweeney experienced both during Terence's hunger strike and again during the treaty debates. The perception of her political extremism was arguably heightened by the fact that she was a woman. Taking on the patriarchal establishment as she did in Brixton uh, um, was transgressive, as arguably was her lengthy speech in the Dáil in December 1921. In his medical report on the 23rd of October 1920, Griffiths, one of the medical officers in Brixton, wrote, quote, Miss McSweeney asked to see me last night and behaved in an extremely unpleasant and disorderly manner in my room. She was, he wrote, troublesome. Indeed, when she visited her brother in Frongock in 1916, uh, Colonel Lambert, the commandant of the camp, declared that, quote, she used language which, had she been a man and not a woman, would have resulted in her being handed over to the police under the defence of the Realm Act. Notwithstanding DeBarca's statement that Mary McSweeney never once mentioned the name of Terence McSweeney uh, during her uh, Dole speech, her uh, anti-treaty speech, she was a woman who had suffered ultimate loss and witnessed, in the words of her sister Annie, scenes that were, quote, agonising beyond anything I could describe. Her brother's political life and death reverberated throughout her speech, even if his name was not explicitly uttered. McSweeney's anguish was palpably on show when she appealed to the House, quote, against the sneers of Arthur Griffith uh, at the length of her speech, claiming her, quote, right to speak for the honour of my nation based on what she went through for 74 days at Brixton. In the last week of his hunger strike, Terence McSweeney's family watched as he became quite unlike himself. On his last Wednesday, he was Annie McSweeney recorded on the verge of delirium. Uh, constantly struggling against the fear that he would be at the doctor's mercy and given sustenance if unconscious. The family witnessed him, quote, striking out at those who came near to him. It was, Annie McSweeney wrote, agonising to see all the pain and struggle to see him being subject to such torture. Her declaration that, quote, none of us will ever forget the horror of that place, Brixton Jail, is vital in understanding the response of Mary McSweeney to the treaty. She was not merely a cipher for the extreme element within republicanism during the treaty debates. She was a woman who had suffered extreme loss and witnessed, uh, as Annie stated, uh, agonizing scenes. It is, of course, very important to underscore that Mary McSweeney was a firm Republican in her own right. As de Berka noted, those listening to her speech on the treaty, quote, wondered whether she was a teacher or the disciple of Terence McSweeney. 
In her speech, she noted that she and all belonging to me absolutely refused to join Sinn Féin until Sinn Féin became Republican. Maxwini was concerned to strengthen the resolve of those she addressed in her speeches on return from America to an understanding of the real likelihood that the war with Britain would recommence. For Maxwini, the value of the peace talks was, as she declared during the debate in December 1921, uh, that um, the value was at the level of propaganda. It was a victory, she said, that Michael Collins, quote, a man called the head of a murder gang, could sit at the same table with Lord George as representative of the Irish people, end quote. A further merit, she said, was, quote, to show the world that we are a reasonable people. In the debate on the uh, ratification of the plenipotentiaries on the 14th of September, Max Sweeney declared, quote, if there were people who did not believe in compromise, let them now say what they had to say or forevermore hold their peace, end quote. There were those who adopted a dismissive tone towards her. Ernest Blythe recalled the following her speech. She, quote, wound up pointing her finger directly at me. I only laughed at her. In a reference to, quote, an uncompromising minority in the September debate, and the necessity to suffer to bring forth the Republic, McSweeney was not just drawing on her own experience of trauma at watching her brother endure protracted and agonizing death. She was also bearing witness to his uh, beliefs. Terence McSweeney wrote, quote, of the men who held the breach, who knew they stood for truth against which nothing can prevail. And if they had to endure struggle, suffering and pain, they had the finer knowledge born of those things, end quote. As the treaty talks began in London, the Abbey Theatre stage, Terence Maxmini's The Revolutionist, published and set in 1914. Prophetically, the play's central theme was the necessity for individual self-sacrifice in the form of death to bring about national unity. On the first day of the peace conference, crowds of Irish sympathisers assembled at the end of Downing Street approached by the Irish delegates. Hymns were sung, the rosary recited, and flags waved in scenes of wild enthusiasm, as one paper recorded. As the crowd shouted out the names of prominent Irishmen, Terence McSweeney was spoken of reverently. In letters, pages long to De Valera McSweeney, Mary McSweeney betrayed her emotional response. Adopting a supplicatory tone, she requested, quote, that he would not be angry with her for writing to him in the way she has. She implored him for guarantees. Quote, don't you think it would be nice of you to show me you are magnanimous by sending me a line of assurance just for me that our envoys will not come back with any plan of Ireland inside the empire. She enclosed poems written by her brother and principles of freedom with marked passages, which she implored De Valera to read. She recalled the, quote, agony of her family this time 12 months. There too, she wrote, quote, face and count the cost daily and hourly. There was time for searching analysis, time to explore every avenue of compromise and having rejected them, time to pray that sacrifice might give strength to all others to endure to the end and give our cause final triumph. Her brother's agony would never, as Maxwini wrote to De Valera, quote, have been endured to the end for anything less than absolute and entire separation. Elizabeth Brennan, secretary to Arthur Brien, underestimated Mary Maxwini's strength of conviction. She wrote, I know that Mary Maxwini spent several hours with him, O'Brien. I would imagine that he poisoned her mind against it, the treaty. No one poisoned Maxwini's mind. Rather, it had narrowed itself around the trauma of her brother's hunger strike. She engaged in a type of repetition compulsion. Her need to repeat and find meaning in the tale of Brixton 1920 meant that her response to the treaty was predetermined. Following her brother's death, Mary Maxwini sought to promote a political and moral culture in Ireland that 
validated and memorialized the self-sacrifice of her brother, her own suffering and that of the wider Maxwini family. The appropriate way to record and remember his traumatic death was the establishment of that for which he had died, a separate uh, republic. Uh, in her speech during the debate on the treaty, Maxwini stated that she spoke, quote, as a woman who realizes as only a woman can the evils of war and the suffering of war. There were, however, she wrote, worse evils worse than war. With, quote, every sense of deep resp responsibility, she declared, let us take war. Stating that, quote, women are the greatest sufferers of war, she continued responding to Sean Milroy, quote, I would ask him if it were a democratic proposition to let the women of Ireland judge this, and I have no doubt what the issue would be. In her speech, Maxwini offered herself to the other side of the House as one of the first and most deliberate and irreconcilable rebels. Those were her words. Uh, so she declared that she would be one of the first and most deliberate and irreconcilable rebels. Quote, if this country should be so false to itself to adopt the so-called treaty. They would have, she wrote, almost prophetically, uh, the pleasure or the pain as it pleases them of imprisoning me. I have already, she declared at a later point in her speech on the treaty, told Michael Collins that I will be the first rebel he will have to arrest. Republicans were, she stated, quote, going to carry on this fight with the gloves off if this thing is passed, end quote. Now, Mary Maxwini, of course, was in prison three times during the Civil War uh, in November 1922 in Mount Joy, when, when she, and she undertook a hunger strike overnight uh, in Kilmainham in February 1923, and again in April 1923 uh, in, in Kilmainham, and uh, she endured two very high-profile and grueling hunger strikes. Certainly in her Dole uh, speech, against the treaty, speaking on the treaty, speaking against the treaty, she sounded a note of fanaticism. She said, if England, quote, exterminates the men, the women will take their places. And if she exterminates the women, the children are rising fast. And if she exterminates the men, the women and children of this generation, the blades of grass dyed with their blood will rise like the dragon's teeth of old into armed men and the fight will begin in the next generation, end quote. So she was there was a note of fanaticism. But her speech also hinged on principle, and it's important to actually um, underscore that. She denounced those who argued that they would accept the treaty but would not take the oath. This, she argued, was, quote, cowardice, a defilement of, quote, the noble and spiritual ideal of the Republic. A person, she said, could not be at the same time faithful and unfaithful. Moreover, um, she was logical. She uh, said that England would not allow any such prevarications. She exhorted deputies not to think they could, quote, get the better of that wizard trickster in Downing Street, Lloyd George, obviously. Maxwini refused to accept that she was either, quote, a fool or willfully blind in not considering the very act of negotiation a compromise. Michael Collins, she de contended, declared to her that he was no compromiser. Having previously trusted the delegates, quote, too much, she moved in December to indict them for betrayal. Childers, she wrote, allowed the propaganda victory that was implicit in bringing England to the negotiating table, quote, to be given away by the English press. She queried why Arthur Brian, quote, the representative of our government in London, was not consulted as to whether it was a bluff or not when Lord George threatened war. The issue of the will of the people was integral to Max Meany's speech. Her constituents, she said, uh, quote, knew what she stood for when she was elected. She had not changed, nor would she. 
invoking her brother's writing, <clears throat> McSweeney declared that, quote, it was not those who can inflict most, but those who can endure most will conquer. Appealing to the legitimacy of Republican marchers, she stated that Sean McKeown, who seconded, quote, the abominable document where her brother, quote, I would rather he was with uh, Kevin Barry. In her rejection of the treaty, McSweeney's McSweeney echoed her brother's concept of working for, as he wrote, quote, a future that only other generations will enjoy, end quote. Denouncing the flippancy of Kevin O'Higgins, she stated, quote, I should like to be as young as Deputy O'Higgins is now to carry on the fight for posterity, end quote. On the 11th of September, Dr. Griffiths, uh, one of the doctors in Brixton Jail, noted that Terence McSweeney was, quote, very bitter and saying, as sure, uh, Sorry, Dr. Griffith noted that Terence McSweeney was, quote, very bitter and says he is being as surely murdered by the government as if he were shot by bandits at the roadside, end quote. Mary McSweeney's avowal of an uncompromising stance on the evils of the treaty um, negotiations and the documents that emerged from them was indelibly formed by the experience of watching her brother die in hunger strike and the trauma that resulted from it. She witnessed an intimate act of self-sacrifice which bound her to a belief that her task was to continue her brother's fidelity to a separatist republic. When Mary McSweeney declared in the Dáil that Ireland had, quote, stood on a noble and spiritual ideal for the last three years, she was referring to sacrifices of men such as her brother. Betrayal of the republic for her would have meant betrayal of her brother she loved and admired, and it would have been almost impossible for her to think and feel in any other way. Thank you. Thanks very much for that, Leanne. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, as I say, we'll keep questions um, toward to the end after all the papers. Um, so our next speaker is um, Dr. Margaret Ward. She's going to speak on Cumnamon Debates the Treaty. Um, Dr. Margaret Ward will be familiar to many of you. She's an honorary senior lecturer in history at Queen's University, Belfast. Her many publications include Hannah Shee Skeffington, Suffragette and Sinn Féinir, her memoirs and political writings, and um, her bibliography, um, Fearless Woman, Hannah Shee Skeffington, Feminism and the Irish Revolution. A pioneering book on imaginable, um, unimaginable, unimaginable revolutionaries, women and Irish nationalism was first, first published in 1983 and is now available in a revised and updated edition by Arlen House. Um, so over to you, Margaret. Thanks very much, Fanula. I must thank Mary McCaula for taking the initiative to organise this event because it's a really key moment in the decade of centenaries, but not one that has been recognised uh, at as such in, in the official ceremonies and the official recognition of the events of this decade. Um, so I'm very pleased that we're able to gather here and, and put this marker down. So I'm talking specifically on the Kamenaman Convention where the organization splits. And I wanna start with some comments on sources for this paper. Now the main part of the convention proceedings were minuted written in pencil, 14 pages, and that manuscript you can read online from the National Library. But it doesn't include Jenny Wise power speech and some other speeches. And the minutes end with the vote of the vote 419 to 63 against the Wise Power Amendments. And it doesn't cover the second motion or the rest of the proceedings. Wise Power sent her speech to the press, so I've included press record reports from the Freeman's Journal, the Irish Independent, the Fermanagh Herald, etc. And while the press wasn't admitted at the start, the delegates agreed on a show of hands to allow them to enter 
and they arrived just as Leslie Barry was about to speak. And then looking at memoirs of the period, it's very significant that coming among members who wrote about this say very little on the actual convention. For example, Maura Comerford goes into detail about their activities during the treaty debate. She then later provides a vivid account of the fighting during the Civil War. But with regards to the convention, she simply gives the names of the women who left, saying that the organisation lost some very fine members. She doesn't even mention that she was the seconder for one of the motions. Lil Conlon from Cork, who wrote the first account of Kamanaman and who was fervently pro-treaty, concentrates on the internal Cork issues in the aftermath of the split, with Mary McSweeney's attempts to have pro-treaty members leave the organisation. Ethna Coyle, who was organising along, along the Donegal border, stated me simply, the treaty played havoc with some of the branches of Kamanaman. I had to scrap many of them and build up others. And I think looking at this, um, this absence, this silence, I think it indicates that it was painful to have this severing of ties with old comrades, and it was glossed over. I do have one account of the convention, and this comes from Elizabeth Corr, who was um, a Belfast Cumminaman member. Uh, Elizabeth had joined Cumminaman at the very beginning, had been one of the Belfast women who had gone to Coal Island at the start of the rising, discovering the rising was called off, had gone down to Dublin to warn the leadership. So she had been um, very active in the organisation. She'd also campaigned at the Longford by-election. She wasn't a delegate for some reason, but she was an observer and she sat in the gallery and she wrote an account uh, called A Belfast Visitor's Impression. And it's significant that Northern delegates never give their names in public and even in convention reports of Kamanaman, uh, particularly the Belfast ones, are not minuted in terms of their names because of the dangers that they faced if they were identified. But according to Elizabeth Corr, men were not permitted into the convention and she comments that it was a pity they were not there to witness the speeches, um, which she said were marvels of conciseness. Without any unnecessary words, forceful and direct, women stated their views briefly and sat down again. She said she'd been listening to speeches since 1915, but in her experience, no one amongst the best of them could approach Mary McSweeney. Her reasoning was masterly, her sentences clear and concise. Never once did she introduce a personal note, which is a very interesting contrast to what we've just heard from Leanne. Um, presumably, by the time the treaty debates were over, Mary McSweeney had made that position clear. But now, during the convention of Kamanaman, she was focused very much on the ideological reasons. So to recap very briefly on the context for the convention, on the 6th of January 1922, Doyle Aaron, by 64 votes to 57, had ratified the treaty and the six female members of the Doyle, who were all members of Kamanaman, had voted against. Radio Milan, who was an executive member and organiser for Kamanaman, was keenly following events. And she said throughout those discussions, the organisation was busy to, quote, making preparations for the possible resumption of hostilities. And not long afterwards, the executive members of Kamanaman, by a majority of 24 votes to two, 
voted in favour of the resolution to, quote, reaffirming its allegiance to the Republic of Ireland and refusing to recognise the Articles of Agreement signed in London on 6th of December 1921. The two members voting against were Jenny Wise Power, the founder of the organisation and its first president, and Alice Mullen from the border town of Monaghan, who'd been an organiser since 1917 and an executive member since 1920. So to ratify this decision of the executive, a members' convention was called for the 5th of February. It's been said that the North wasn't a feature of the debate, but the evidence is that Northern members did their best to have their concerns included. So the night before, on Saturday, the 4th of February, delegates from the six counties of Ulster, who are now very unwillingly part of the new state of Northern Ireland, held a separate meeting to draw up a six-county policy to be put to the meeting the next day. Partition was an issue of concern to the members, and some of them would refer to the North during the debate. The truce and hostilities didn't apply in the six counties, and there were three prisoners in Derry jail due to be executed on the 9th of February. So the convention met at 11am on the Sunday, and there were 600 members of Cumanamon, including representatives from overseas branches, and they met in the Mansion House in Dublin. Each branch was allowed two delegates, but a rail strike prevented some Cork and Kerry members from attending, and Little Conlon from Cork might have been one of those who wasn't able to make the meeting. Also, some pro-treaty branches decided not to attend, feeling it was going to be a face accompli. There were only two motions on the agenda. One was the executive motion that I've already read out, and the other proposed by Margaret Pierce, the mother of Patrick and Willie, was intended to alter the policy of the organisation to support at the forthcoming elections to quote only those candidates who stand true to the existing republic proclaimed in Easter week 1916 and established as a functioning government in 1918, and that no branch of Kamenaman can give any help to a candidate standing for the free state. The proceedings were presided over by Countess Markovich in her role as president of the organization. She stressed in her presidential role she could not make a political speech, but she asked delegates, quote, to give the question careful thought and ask God to give you level heads here today. So Mary McSweeney then proposed the first motion. She argued the Republic has shown it is able to govern the Irish people and the army. And now we're asked to turn that republic down for dominion home rule with an oath of fidelity to King George V. The question is one of principle. It is for us, Kamenaman, to maintain the republic. In 700 years of our struggle against England, we have never acknowledged that we are British citizens. To acknowledge the treaty is to acknowledge that we are British citizens. And that motion was seconded by Miss Green, a delegate from Killarney. Leslie Price Barry, an invaluable member since before the rising, who'd recently married the prominent IRA man Tom Barry, referred to the fact that in her eyes, the treaty to quote, had let down the people of the North who had suffered frightfully during the last few years. By accepting the treaty, she said, we hand over the people of the North to the enemies who tortured them. Leslie had trained as a teacher at St. Mary's College in Belfast she obviously knew women from her time there and was possibly lobbied by the Ulster delegates. 
Alice Mullen then stood up to say she supported the treaty and added, we are not let down in the North. We know there were a few other speeches, but we come to the intervention of Jenny Wise Power, the founder and first president, and an activist since her days with Anna Parnell and the Ladies Land League in the 1880s. Wise Power hoped her amendment would avert a split in the organization. And this is it. The convention reaffirmed its allegiance to the Republic, but realizing that the treaty would be a big step towards the Republic, they would not work obstructively against those who are supporting the treaty, either in their putting the treaty before the people or in its subsequent working, should it be accepted by the Irish people at the election. So she also urged Kaminaman to take no side at the general election and declared she was very emotional in this. It required some courage for her to say what she intended to say there. She had nothing to put before them in the way of a heroic record, except that her life had been spent in drudgery for the service of Ireland. She was clear that the women were auxiliaries to the men of the IRA, and remember that the IRA had not met yet. It hadn't decided its position. Kamenaman is the first organisation to do so. So she said it was therefore premature for them to register a decision before the IRA had declared what they were going to do. She challenged her audience if they really intended to go out in the open against Irish men who had fought and nobly worked for the Republic. If they intended to obstruct the free state, she went on to argue they wouldn't be able to send their children to the schools of the free state. Elizabeth Corr, watching proceedings from the gallery, wrote that Wise Power's final statement, you have seen the British troops going, was greeted with cries of no, with the Northern delegates shouting out that they were being drafted into the six counties we want a republic, nothing else. The meeting was then adjourned at 1.45 p.m. after several other speakers had been heard, and it resumed at half past three and continued until 6.15. In this heated discussion, Min Ryan, who was now Mrs. Richard Mulcahy, deplored the introduction of personalities and declared her belief that the republic could be obtained through the free states within a short time. A lot of them took the Michael Collins stepping stones um, position. Another supporter of the amendment, Mrs. Porter, said she'd lived in South Africa for a number of years. And from her experience, wisdom would be on the side of acceptance of the treaty. But most speakers were firmly on the side of rejection. Margaret Skinner, wounded while on active duty during the Easter Rising, argued to quote, it was not a question between the Republic and the Free State. It's a question between the Republic and the British Empire. For Sheila Bowen, no material advantage would recompense for a spiritual surrender. Miss O'Byrne from South Armagh said her district was always consistently Republican. Anya Kent asserted that the Free State was a sop for the Republic. And one of Kathleen Clark's sisters objected to becoming the state of the British Empire, the greatest force for evil that the world has known. Cunningham from McCroom declared they would accept death before dishonour. In winding up this heated debate, Mary McSweeney paid tribute to the contribution of wise power, adding, however, to quote, she was intensely surprised to hear her advocate that they should wait for the men, for she, meaning wise power, was fighting when many of them were in their cradles, the women's right to take their places in the councils of the nation. If the IRA became a free state army, where they're going to work for them, cries of no. 
Therefore, why wait for the men? Rather, let it be their place to give them a lead if they needed it. So the amendment was eventually defeated by 419 votes to 63, with some abstentions, and the original resolution was then put and carried. For the 62 Ulster branches, the outcome of the vote was critical to their whole future, and Cor captured the, the drama of the moment. She said the counties were taken alphabetically, beginning with Antrim, and our delegate's name was called first. Her need toil was flung into the assembly in a voice that could have been heard at the Cave Hill. Up Belfast, said my neighbour on the gallery. The other Belfast and County Antrim delegates were as emphatic. Sometimes a delegate, not sure of her Irish, said against, but nearly all used the Irish. The amendment to the constitution regarding support for Republican candidates at the election was then proposed by Margaret Pierce, who said she had given her all for the Republic, but would not say a word against the men who stood for the treaty, who, although they had done their best, had erred as bold children do. They didn't do what they were told. She didn't believe Lloyd George could declare war upon them. In seconding the motion, Maura Comerford said a failure in the election for the Republic would be as great a failure as if they had never started it. But despite this major split in the ranks, members seem to have been united in their attitude towards the North. And I think this is very interesting, and I can't explain how they stayed together for this motion. The resolution that had been devised by their Northern members was introduced by Min Mulcahy and seconded by Mary McSweeney, so women from the opposite sides um, of the split and it was passed unanimously that we, Cumberland assembled in convention to hereby call upon the women of Ireland to join us in reimposing the boycott on Belfast unless the political prisoners lying in jails in the north of Ireland, particularly the three men condemned to death in Derry Jail, were at once released. Markovic outlining the future programme of the organisation now that this momentous decision had been made attempts to calm passions, urging members not to oppose those working for the free state if they were working on Republican lines, for example, in introducing Irish into schools. She added her voice to those who called for no abusing and no anonymous letters. The issue extending the franchise to women between the ages of 21 and 30 before the calling of an election had not yet been decided by the Doyle. This is before Kate Callaghan put forward her motion. And Cumberland agreed to participate in women's delegations to Arthur Griffith and Eamon de Valera to lobby for their support in lowering the voting age. Those who supported the treaty now resigned from Cumberland So the militants in the organisation now had a mandate to undertake activities that supported the motions agreed upon. In enforcing the Belfast boycott, Ethna Coyle from Donegal, with a small group of women, patrolled the railway lines along the border removing at gunpoint newspapers, which were burnt on the station platforms. There had been moves um, from within Cumberland for a number of years to move from its role simply as an auxiliary to the IRA to becoming an independent militant women's organization. And to some extent, this seems to have happened for a period with the removal of some members of the old guard. Those who'd been vocal in the convention debate, particularly Leslie Barry, Maura Comerford, Margaret Skinner, Sheila Bowen, would um, soon be to the forefront in what John, John Borganova has described as combat support roles, 
which were very different to the more traditionally gendered roles of safe provision uh, of houses and first aid. And uh, that's the end of the convention and the organisation split. Very much, Margaret. That was really interesting. Um, so much there to that. Our next speaker um, is Dr. Maria McAuliffe, um, who um, is the organiser of today's event. Um, and she's going to be speaking on Sister Against Sister, Coming Amon and Coming Sirsha, 1922 to 1923. Um, Dr. Mary McAuliffe is historian and director of the Gender Studies Programme at University College Dublin. She recently published a biography of the Scottish-born Irish revolutionary and feminist um, Margaret Skinner um, at UCD Press in 2020. And she's co-editor of um, the book, um, Legacies of the Magdalene Laundries, Commemoration, Gender and the Post-Colonial Carceral um, State at Manchester University Press, um, which she co-edited with Miriam Houghton and Emily Pine, um, a really important book. She was a co-editor of Sexual Politics in Modern Ireland, and she's writing on Kilkenny and the Irish Revolution for the Four Courts Press um, series on that period. She was a co-editor of Sayer, the Journal of the Irish Labour History Society, um, and she's also a long-standing committee member of the Women's History Association and a former president, um, and somewhere finding time in, in, between all of that um, to be pursuing research on gendered and sexual violence during the Irish War of Independence and the Civil War. Um, so over to you, Mary. Thank you all for attending. And um, it came to me um, when I realised, uh, when I thought about the uh, uh, upcoming centenaries um, uh, this year in January, that there seemed to be no plans to commemorate or think about or reflect on uh, the Cumannamon Convention and the split within Cumannamon, which I thought was a very much missed opportunity because Cumannamon is the single biggest uh, female organisation, as Margaret uh, so so really wonderfully outlined. Um, they were beginning to become much more militant uh, in this period. Uh, and the split that happens within Cumannamon has real impact on the civil war. So it occurred to me that here was another example of women's history being perhaps being overlooked or, or not perhaps actually being overlooked. Um, and that, again, we, those women, those female historians had to do something about it. And I'm very delighted that the three speakers I uh, approached, Leanne, Margaret and Katrina, agreed uh, almost immediately to um, participate in this and Fanula to chair. And I had a little bit of money in order for this to be recorded because I feel it is something, this split in coming among that needs a permanent record. So all of these speeches will now be hosted on the History Hub website and will also be broadcast uh, on Oroctus TV. And from what my knowledge of Oroctus TV, they broadcast these things over and over again. So you'll probably see myself and Leanne and Margaret and Katrina at 4, 4 a.m. in the morning, some morning if you're up and, and not if you're sleepless and you can hear this again. What I want to look at is the what happens after the split and when Jenny Wise Power and those other leave coming among. And you've already heard here about the Doyle debates, so um, evocatively spoken about by uh, Leanne, particularly Mary McSweeney's contribution. And of course, she was very important at the convention and about the coming among convention itself, uh, in which the majority took the anti-treaty stance. What I want to look at in this paper is the implications of the split in coming among and begin that conversation that I think we're beginning to happen, but I think we need to happen and have it more and more, which pushes back against this trope of brother against brother in the Irish Civil War, that the impacts and legacies of the split are, are very powerful and very important among political and militant women in the immediate and in the long term. 
The immediate result of the vote on February the 5th, of course, was the departure from Cumann of many long-standing and senior central figures. Founder member and pro-treaty supporter Jenny Wise Power offered her resignation, which was accepted with regret. But she wasn't the only senior member to leave. Others included Men Mulcahy, uh, or Men Ryan, who was now married to Richard Mulcahy, who had been active in Cumann since 1914 and indeed is one of those um, um, people who Roy Foster so uh, vividly evokes in his book, Vivid Faces. Um, uh, she had been um, more or less a fiancé to Sean McDermott and, and was the person who, last, who saw him last before he was executed in 1916. And the Ryan sisters are very interested in this. All of her sisters are very political and they do split on the treaty. Also on the pro-treaty side were other founder members, Elizabeth Bloxham and Louise Gavin Duffy, as well as other well-known women, not officially members of Cumann but supporters of nationalist politics who voiced pro-treaty stances. These include Alice Stopford-Green and Mary Spring Rice of both Gunner and fame. Stopford-Green, a historian and longtime supporter of Irish nationalism, uh, lived in St. Stephen's Green, Dublin. And from her home, she and Maura Comerford, who was anti-treaty, um, but was her private secretary during the War of Independence and a Cumann activist, organised and distributed Republican propaganda. And according to Comerford's memoirs, they also hid arms in the House during the War of Independence. In fact, in the memoirs, there's a very harrowing description of one raid on the House in March 1921, which occurred sometime after the murder of the Lord Mayor of Limerick, Michael O'Callaghan, of course, married to Kate O'Callaghan, one of the anti-treaty TDs in the Doyle. Comerford describes it. She says, as the uh, military pushed in, I was pushed back against the wall. He, the auxiliary, forced his revolver into my mouth and my mouth was full of steel. Comerford, of course, was anti-treaty. This split between the two women uh, who worked and collaborated together throughout the War of Independence starkly illustrates the sister split among organised, militant and activist women. Comerford would carry dispatches between the anti-treaty forces in the Four Courts and the IRA's Dublin Brigade and later act as a courier to Republican units in the various parts of the country. She was arrested in January 1923 and imprisoned in Mountjoy, where she went on hunger strike. After her transfer to the North Dublin Union, and she escaped on the 9th of May 1923, but was rearrested a short time later on June 1st, where she again went on hunger strike. She was released from Kilmainham sometime later on a stretcher because of her experiences and deprivation during the hunger strike. On the other hand, Stockford Green supported the treaty, joined Cumannasirsha, campaigned for a pro-treaty vote in the June election, and became a member of the Irish Free State Senate. Here in one space, in one home, in one house, we see the impact of the serious split among Republican women. As Maria Comerford later recalled in her memoir, Cumann lost some very fine women, foundation members, others, executive members, who had helped guide them through the war years. All had proved themselves. And there seems very real sorrow in this statement from Comerford on the split. And you see that as well in the speeches in the, um, at the convention itself. While uh, the um, records uh, indicate that there were one or two boos, mo mostly there was sorrow that these women were now divided amongst themselves. While the anti-treaty women in Cumann began to organise, and many would later become involved in many anti-treaty military campaigns, their pro-treaty sisters, all serious activists, well used to organising, were not going to allow the field to Cumann. 
On March the 12th, 1922, in the Mansion House in Dublin, Jenny Wise Power addressed a meeting and emphasised the necessity of having an organisation which would give a platform to those women. Next slide, please, Mike, who supported the treaty. She said an idea had gone abroad that all the women were against the treaty. Their presence here in Dublin shows that uh, there were women who saw the course they proposed to adopt uh, was the right one from the national point of view. When the constitution of the new organisation, that is Common Assertia, was proposed, they would see that the women of Irish nationality need not be ashamed or afraid to go to them in that organisation. They believed that through the treaty and through the parliament of the nation that would be set up, they would gain free freedom quicker than through any other means. The women of Ireland, not the noisy faction of them, stood where they always stood on the bedrock of Irish nationality. So here you can see uh, Jenny Wise Power echoing the idea of the freedom to gain freedom. She didn't see the treaty as something that was um, set in stone, that, that, that they, but that it was a considered stance, similar to the stances taken by many of the anti-treaty political women. These women had thought long and hard about their ideologies and where they were going to stand. On March 15th, 1922, the Irish Independents discussed this remarkable gathering of women, as it said, under the headline of the birth of Common Assertia. It does claim that there were about 1,500 women at the inaugural meeting, although 700 seems now to be the more accepted number, similar to the number that actually were at the convention in, uh, on February the 5th, 1922. Either number demonstrates that Common Assertia did have the support among a wide swathe of political women. Joining Wise Power on the platform was Alice Stopford Green, whose proposal for their constitution was adopted. It read, Common Assertia is an independent, an independent body of women pledged to work for the securing and maintaining of Ireland's rights as an autonomous and sovereign state to determine freely her form of government. This was accepted, and from then on, Common Assertia began to organise quickly around propaganda campaigns and election campaigns for the upcoming election, uh, uh, particularly to get pro-treaty candidates elected. Min Mulcahy recommended at the meeting that Common Assertia work to get pro-treaty candidates elected would not imitate the methods of their opponents. And you begin to see here the idea that the common man women were the wild women, were those that the common Assertia women had to be more respectable, uh, better behaved. And that split in ideology, but also in the type of woman uh, that either were, is beginning to come into the discourse uh, very early on and will continue on uh, throughout the existence of common Assertia in opposition to common man. While Common Assertion never developed into the huge organisation that Common Amman had been at the height of its strength, branches began to appear in many parts of the country, in Dublin, in Kilkenny, Waterford, Wexford, Gray, Sligo, while there were many individuals around the country supported, supportive of its work as well. Next slide, please, Mike. Initially, they produced the first campaigning points of any pro-treaty organisation for, for the election. In their points for canvassers, it divided the issue into seven points of what, number one, the treaty rids us of, and number two, what the treaty gives us. And you can see there uh, the different things that they listed out that we, you know, it would rid us of the police force, trained for, trained for political espionage. And of course, so many of these women had suffered reprisal raids by the Black and Tans and by the RIC. Um, it would uh, uh, rage British control of the purses and British taxation and the stranglehold on Irish trade and industry. It would give us a regular Irish army, a regular Irish police force, control over education to build up 
and restore the language and culture and Irish Parliament with full power to make laws and subject uh, and not have it subject to any British veto, an Irish executive subject only to the authority of the Irish Parliament and power to develop our own resources and industries. Uh, and again, it's hard to tell in many ways how important coming the Saoirse propaganda was to the 1922 election campaign. Interestingly, um, in the attempt to get the women's vote reduced to 21 uh, and get full suffrage before it was introduced later in the year in time for the June election, uh, Wise Power and a number of the Cumannasirsha women did not participate in that campaign, not because they weren't, uh, they didn't agree with that, but because they agreed with the idea that having younger women vote uh, was a dangerous thing in that many of them would be anti-treaty. However, because of the Collins de Valera Pact signed in mid-May 1922, where the pro and anti-treaty side agreed to fight the election join, jointly and form a coalition government afterwards, the main activity of Cumannasirsha was, was moot in many ways. So it decided that women could go working for the return of pro-treaty candidates where we're not debarred from working for other panel candidates, um, uh, anyone they would choose to campaign for. In the end, 58 pro-treaty Sinn Féin candidates were returned as opposed to 36 anti-treatyites. The remaining 34 seats were filled with pro-treaty candidates from the other parties. This was a success for the pro-treaty side, but also deepened the split in Sinn Féin, in Common Amman, Common Nasirsha, and in the IRA. During the election itself, invective and insults were hurled between the women. Common Amman regarded the Common Assertia members as women of low character, and the Common Assertia saw the Common Amman anti-treatyites as wild women. But as the country descended into civil war, the split between the women becomes more and more evident and bitter. Common Assertia would last another 18 months, and by December 1923, with most anti-treaty prisoners released and the civil war effectively over, it would dissolve itself. During the civil war, women were to play different but important roles on both sides. Many on the common Amman side returned to their activities as allies of the anti-treaty IRA. They ran the safe houses and protected arms dumps. They collected intelligence, transported arms. They also become much more militant. And as Margaret pointed out, they, you know, Ethna Coyle and, and many of the others using armed raids to hold up um, uh, the mail on the railway lines and enforce the Belfast boycott. Uh, and you can see this anxiety about gun women uh, in the newspapers throughout the Civil War period. Cumannasirsha took the side of the national government and the national army. This war, often written as a tragic conflict between male comrades who had fought together, was also a war between women who had also fought together during the War of Independence. So important was coming among to the anti-treaty side that the Free State authorities arrested and imprisoned over 600 of them during the course of the war. Coming the Searsha, while not active in the field, was, import was as important to the pro-treaty side. There is, as Cal McCarthy notes, evidence of a civil war, a sustained civil war campaign by the organization. They continued their propaganda campaign, often directing it in response to coming among anti-treaty propaganda, they were much in evidence at funerals of pro-treaty uh, politicians. Next slide, please, Mike. Um, as Common Amman were at funerals such as that of Cahal Brua. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any images of Common Nasirsha at, at Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith, but they are described at, uh, as such. Uh, and here are the Common Amman women, the anti-treaty women, uh, guarding the body of Cahal Brua. His uh, widow had insisted that no men stand over his body because she couldn't be sure that they weren't um, pro-treaty. 
she could only trust the Republican women. During the course of the war, the Comunistia also engaged in fundraising for the National Army. They organized Cayleys, carnivals, parties, ran appeals for subscriptions for all the brave men who, as they said, had gone into battle and have sustained their inner injuries in order that the rights and liberties of the unarmed people of Ireland might be secured and safeguarded. Many members in the Common Amon during the War of Independence had also provided that same um, um, type of sustenance to the IRA and would continue to do so during the uh, Civil War. This meant that Common Assertia members looked on, on with horror and distaste on the wild women of Common Amon and were determined to stop them supporting the anti-treaty IRA. So as well as providing intelligence gathering services, the Common Assertia uh, women collaborated with the National Army in attempting to control the activities of anti-treaty women. This was a very bitter aspect of the civil war for women generally. Women who together, uh, who had been together during the War of Independence were now policing and threatening each other. The IRA and its Cumannaman allies watched the Cumannasertia women with great suspicion. It was thought that Cumannasertia women were passing information to the, on the IRA to the National Army via network of call houses a series of homes and houses where information on IRA activity and personnel, that is the irregular IRA, uh, was collected from callers. This call house network worried the IRA so much that GHQ warmed its membership of their existence. The women also spied on each other. Uh, next slide, Mike. Sheila Humphreys and Mary Deegan of the anti-treaty side organized intelligence gathering of uncommon assertion. For instance, uh, Roisin Colbert of the Ranala branch of Cumannaman was instructed to join Cumannasertia by Humphreys, although uh, Colbert's anti-treaty uh, activities did get her arrested later in January 1923 and she was imprisoned. She did pro provide some intelligence on Cumannasertia. Christine Byrne of the Inini branch of Cumannaman in Dublin also joined Cumannasertia for intelligence work, as did Marjorie Mooney of the Ballandine branch of Cumannaman on the instruction of Humphreys. Margaret Walsh, also of the Anini branch, joined a meeting of the pro-treaty Cumannasertia group, as she says in her pension application, to collect information, which she then passed on uh, to the Director of Intelligence of the anti-treaty Cumannaman, Maura Deegan. On the other hand, Nellie Kavanagh of the Moon branch of Cumannaman in County Carlow states that she joined Cumannasertia and helped prevent ambush attempts on National Army officers by the Irregulars. This was part of the bitter propaganda campaign against Cumannasertia. Uh, in, for example, in uh, July, uh, when Jenny Wise Power as Vice President of Sinn Féin closed its offices in Harcourt Street, she was attacked in the Republican news sheet, the Fenian, which, which referred to her as a leading light, and I quote, in the anemic movement, women's organisation known as Cumannasertia. On the other hand, in order to lessen the effectiveness of Cumannaman, Cumannasertia cooperated with army forces in stopping and searching suspected anti-treaty women, earning itself the bitter nickname of Cumannasertiers. And of course, there had already been during the War of Independence um, a serious uh, hate of what were called the lady searchers, women who had participated with the Crown forces um, and with the Black and Tans and the auxiliaries in searching militant women. Um, and uh, they were used within prisons. Now Cumannasertia is providing that service uh, to the National Army. They also helped guard anti-treaty women who were imprisoned in Kilmainham Jail and in Mountjoy. 
On the 30th of April 1923, eight of the women prisoners who were being moved from Kilmainham to the North Dublin Union uh, and a ruckus ensued. Uh, Mary McSweeney and Kate O'Callaghan were on hunger strike then and the prisoners refused to be moved. Uh, next slide, Mike. According to pro-treaty reports, the women attacked the warders, but according to the anti-treaty side, the prisoners were attacked by CID men, warders and Commonwealth members. With one common man woman, Sorica McDermott, uh, in a report in ERA, the Irish Nation anti-treaty news sheet, which um, was uh, May 19th, 1923, it said that she was knocked to the floor by five Commonwealth women, stripped of her shoes and stockings and dress, held down by Harry Mangan, the prison adjutant, uh, who knelt on her while the women beat her with their own shoes. When she recovered consciousness, she was out in the passage, lying on the floor, partially dressed, and her clothes saturated with water, which they had flung on her. Her, lip was, her face is bruised and her lip cut and her body covered in bruises. However, there was violence on both sides. Homes and businesses of those attached to come in the Sirsa were watched and sometimes attacked. On Tuesday, December 12th, 1922, the Irish Farm Produce Store at 21 Camden Street, which belonged to Jenny Wise Power, was attacked with incendiary devices and burnt because of her membership of Come in the Searsha. Next slide, Mike. In Tipperary Town, Celia Shaw, an organiser with Come in the Searsha, down from Dublin, was recognised by Common Amman women. She was uh, taken in her room interrogated and her attache case, which was found to contain notes and literature in connection with Cumanasirsha, captured and basically she was told to get out of town. The Cumanaman women communicated to Dublin that all branches of Cumanasirsha were banned in their area and they could and would use every means in their power to make them ineffective. So this shows the type of, of enmity and bitterness and divisiveness that the treaty brought between what had been uh, the, the, the previously um, united front of common Amman. The Civil War ended in May 1923, and although many male and female anti-treaty prisoners were not released until later that year, common Amman were on the losing side, and many of the political women in common the Searsha were in the ascendant politically, with three of them, Jenny Wise Power, Alice Dockford Green, and Eileen Costello appointed to the Free State Senate. The bitterness of the split and the support Common Amman gave to the anti-treaty side left a hard legacy. Next slide, Mike. Some women, for instance, like anti-treaty Nell Rhine, sister of pro-treaty Min Mulcahy, uh, were bitterly divided from their friends and colleagues. She and her best friend, pro-treaty Senator Kathleen Brown, never spoke again. They had been arrested together in Wexford during 1916 and imprisoned in Watford Jail and then in Richmond Barracks and Kilmainham and indeed had, had, had fought the War of Independence together as uh, activists in Wexford. Now they would never speak again. During the Civil War, they'd each threatened to have the other burnt out. As the letter in Brown's archive states, we were saved from being burnt out only by the military guard of the National Army on their uh, land, and threats from the officers to burn Miss Ryan's place in Tom Cool to the ground if mine was meddled in by the irregulars. The Rhine sisters themselves, who split on the treaty, with Min watching her sister Nell go through a near-death hunger strike experience in Kilmainham, only kept the family together by always ensuring that no politics were discussed at family gatherings, as many of their descendants have uh, actually confirmed. Many families, relationships and former comrades had similar stories. The attempts by Cumann the Searsha to platform the rational 
political pro-treaty ideology of Irish women against what it called the noisy, noisy faction of wild women had limited success. Discourses which developed on organised women saw them either as brave, good women and girls who gave up so much, in, uh, who gave us so much help in our dark, trying days, but now have completely lost their minds, as said Bat O'Connor, or as unlovely, destructive-minded begetters of violence and furies, as said by P.S. O'Hegarty. Pro-treaty newspapers and propaganda from the National Army and the Free State Government also contained anxieties about these harpies, these diehards, these Amazons, these gun girls, images the pro-treaty women uh, had wished to avoid, but which they were largely unsuccessful in achieving. However, common, common enemies and common causes would paper over some of the Civil War enmities in the coming years. For example, Kathleen Clark, who was anti-treaty, joined pro-treaty women, Weisspower, Costello and Brown in the Irish Free State Senate, where all four worked together in trying to combat the flurry of misogynistic anti-women legislation, which proliferated in those first two decades of the Irish Free State. And as the bitterness of war faded, the pro-treaty women often collaborated with former anti-treaty common among women against the extreme conservatism and anti-women equality ideologies of their political masters, Common Goyle and the Fianna Fáil uh, in the Irish Free State. The adage of the enemy of, of my enemy is my friend helping to heal some wounds. However, the legacy of the split is vital um, to acknowledge in our remembering of the Irish Civil War. And we have to really remember going forward and in, in, in writing the Civil War that this was not only brother against brother, but also, unfortunately, sister against sister. Thank you. Thanks so much for that, Mary. Um, really quite moving on the divisions that developed um, between sisters and, and all these former friends. Um, our last speaker is Professor Katrina Bowman. Professor Katrina Bowman is Professor of Social History and Director of Research at the School of Law and Social Sciences in at London South Bank University in the United Kingdom. She's a council member and trustee of the Royal Historical Society, and she sits on the editorial boards of 20th Century British History and Contemporary British History. Her research focuses on the history of female activism and women's movements in the 19th and 20th century Ireland and Britain. Her book, Housewives and um, Citizens, Domesticity and Women's Movement in England, 1928-1964, was published by Manchester University Press in 2013. And she's published um, numerous articles and chapters um, um, looking at networks, um, the suffrage movement and its aftermath um, in Ireland and in Britain. She's currently working on a history of intergenerational female activism in England from the 1960s to 1980s. And today she's speaking to us on Cumnaman, the Anglo-Irish Treaty and Women's Contribution to the New Irish State, my grandmother's story. So over to you, Katrina. Thanks very much, right? And thanks very much, Mary, for the invitation to come today. Um, it's great to hear it's been recorded, although having said that people might be watching this at four in the morning, I'm going to have to go with nice gentle tones, I think, not to give anyone a shock at that time of night. So, um, members of Common the Mon who rejected the 1921 Anglo-Irish Treaty and supported the anti-treaty side in the Irish Civil War could not, as Louise Ryan has argued, be easily incorporated into the construction of Irish femininity in the new Irish state. In contrast to the idealised image of Irish womanhood, the gentle, caring and devoted wife and mother, that came to dominate representations of Irish female identity post-1922, militant Republican women were characterised, to quote the words of P.S. O'Hegarty, who Mary just uh, mentioned a moment ago, 
Um, they're characterized as harpies and women ill-suited for rational political discourse. Louise Ryan convincingly suggests portraying them as furies, diehards and dangerous hysterical women was a useful way for politicians, the Catholic hierarchy and the press to highlight all that was violent and irregular about the Republican movement in the wake of the Civil War. In this paper, I want to shift attention away from this negative portrayal of common Lamont members who voted against the 1921 treaty. Instead, I want to consider the ways in which women who rejected the treaty and refused to recognize the new Irish free state went on to contribute to civic society in innovative and constructive ways. By taking the example of my own grandmother, Maureen Beaumont Niemagavak, I want to shine a light on the lesser known lifelong activism of women who were members of Common the Mon in the first, first two decades of the 20th century. These are women whose names aren't mentioned in the history books, who aren't featured in TV documentaries, so aren't familiar to students of history or the general public. Nevertheless, many of these women managed to put their antipathy to the treaty and the Irish Free State to one side, and as I argue here, made a positive contribution to Irish society, and in particular to women's lives in the decades following the split. So taking my paternal grandmother, Maureen, as a case study, I think it's time to introduce her to you. These three photos nicely encapsulate her life. The first is an image of her in her come in the morn uniform when she would have been in her early to mid twenties, perched on a bike with a fishing rod and a rifle. And I'm very grateful to my aunt Helen and my cousin Eamon O'Kissoin for sharing this photo with me and to Eamon for overseeing the entry for Maureen in the Dictionary of Irish Biography, which is available online. Unfortunately, we don't know much about the circumstances in which this photo was taken or the date, which is frustrating, as I'd love to know more about when and where and how it came about. The second image is a passport photo from 1954 when Maureen was aged 60. And in her passport, she listed her occupation as a housewife, which perhaps isn't surprising for the time, but is interesting in light of all the other activities that she was involved in. And the final photo is a picture of her with me in the back garden of our home in Sandy Mountain, Dublin. I'm the little one. Um, and this was taken in the summer before she died 50 years ago. Um, and she died on the 19th of January, uh, 50 years ago. So to me, she was always Mamo, my granny. My father, Pierce, mother, Margaret, and my three sisters lived with us in the same house. So she was very present in my early childhood. I have fond memories of seeking refuge in her half of the house. We lived in a long single story bungalow um, when I was in trouble for something or other, which was quite frequent. And she would reward me with sugar lumps and butterscotch sweets for my trouble. Maureen was born in Glenarm, County Antrim in 1894 and was the niece of Owen McNeil, founder of the Gaelic League and the Irish Volunteers. Owen was also professor of early Irish history here at UCD, and in 1922, he presided over the treaty debates in the Doyle as speaker. In this role, he couldn't vote, but he was avowedly pro-treaty, and this fact sadly led to a falling out with his sister Annie McGavock, Maureen's mother. Maureen was educated at Dominican College, Eccle Street in Dublin, and then enrolled on the BA Languages degree at UCD. 
She was awarded her BA in 1915, followed by an MA in German in 1916. In 1917, she graduated from UCD with a higher diploma in education. In the same year, with Louise Gavin Duffy, a common Lamont executive member who in 1922 voted for the treaty and joined Common Lusertia, Maureen became a founding member of staff of Skullbreda, the Irish language secondary school for girls. In her witness statement to the Bureau of Military History, submitted in May 1950, Maureen recalled that in 1915, she stored two violin cases containing ammunition and revolvers in her room at Dominican Hall at the request of Godfrey J.J. Ginger O'Donnell for the Irish volunteers, and that was subsequently picked up for the Easter Rising. She was in Belfast for the university Easter holidays in 1916 and so played no part in the Rising. And following the Rising and her return to Dublin, she joined Common the Mon and supported its work to raise funds for prisoners, dependents and spent time visiting prisoners. In her statement to the Military Bureau, she recalled the bad flu of 1918 raging in Dublin and her involvement in Common the Mon's voluntary nurses scheme. Here, Common the Mon members who were trained in first aid offered their services uh, to the general public while doctors and nurses were busy dealing with the pandemic. She also documented what she referred to as her usual Common the Mon activities of drilling, first aid training and home nursing which continued throughout 1919 and 1920. In 1920, she was appointed to the executive of Common the Mon and worked, and worked as an organizer in Northern counties, including Antrim and Tyrone. And on the slide here, you can see from her 1921 pocketbook, she lists what I'm assuming are some of the meetings that she was attending um, on the one side of the notebook there. And on the other side, you can see what I, again, I assume was the agenda for these meetings, which set out, and um, you can see there, if you're able to see it as policy and purpose of, them, of coming them on, the election of officers, it lists activities such as first aid and field dressing and safe houses, um, and then also suggests the special points that coming them on members needed to abide by a code of discipline, punctuality, silence, and courage. When Common the Mon convened the 5th of February 1922 convention to debate the treaty, Maureen, in her speech to the convention, and you can see this is the, uh, the, the, the nice document that Margaret referred to um, in her paper, uh, which you can access online, digitised by the National Library. So Maureen spoke of this as a member of the executive. And in her speech, she argued that if we accept the treaty, we will never get a republic. Here she highlighted the right of women to have their say in the debate, but interestingly felt the need to point out that she was not an enthusiast about women's rights. This statement is illustrative of the long history of friction between feminism and nationalism within Irish women's activism. Women in Common the Mon and the, and in the suffrage movement often felt they had to choose which to prioritize, a dilemma which has been well documented by academics, including Margaret Ward, and Louise Ryan. So following the Common Lamont split, Maureen remained in the anti-treaty Common Lamont. I haven't been able to find any information about Maureen's life during the Civil War or any evidence that she was actively involved. I hope to be able to find out more now that my, my interest has peaked and I, I'd love to do more research on her. Um, but for now, we know that she married my grandfather, Sean Beaumont, founder of Imperinuk, in 1923. 
And they went on to have three children, Moira in 1925, Helen in 1927, and my dad, Pierce, in 1933. During this time, and well into the 1940s, she worked as an external examiner for education for the National University of Ireland and travelled to Cork, Galway and Maynooth to undertake this work. I found a letter in her papers dated 1944, where she and an academic at Maynooth are wrangling over an M.Ed. dissertation mark. That's something that uh, some of us here can well relate to. So I want to turn now to consider the contribution that Maureen made to Irish society post-1922 through her involvement in a number of civil society organisations which were set up to enhance the lives of women. Her active participation in these groups is notable, although I think we can infer from her 1922 speech at the convention that she would have rejected the label feminist. However, she was obviously committed to improving the social, economic and educational opportunities for women in the new Irish state. In, early 1930, in the early 1930s, she was a member of the Dublin Playgrounds Committee, which oversaw the provision of child guidance, home visiting, playgrounds and nurseries in Dublin. This body was affiliated to the Civics Institute, a non-sectarian organisation set up in 1914 following a conference sponsored by the Women's National Health Association. And it's worth noting that the Women's National Health Association was later affiliated to the National Council of Women of Ireland, which successfully brought together a vibrant network of women's organisations, which came to represent the Irish women's movement during the 1920s and beyond. The Civics Institute not only supported social services for mothers, but also was instrumental in the foundation of a social studies course at Trinity College Dublin. However, its activities with regards to social activism in Dublin were soon curtailed by Archbishop McQuaid, who insisted that only Catholic groups could provide such services to women. During the 1950s, Maureen was involved in two key national women's organisations the National University Women Graduates Association and the Irish Country Women's Association. It may well be that she was involved in both groups at an earlier date, but for now I can only evidence her um, involvement in the 1950s. So from the slide here, you can see that she is listed as president of the Women Graduates Association from 1951 to 1952, and at the same time she was president of the UCD branch. Alongside her in this image of, of former presidents are some much more well-known figures in Irish women's history. Alice Oldham, professors Mary Hayden, Agnes O'Farrelly, who was a founder of Come on the Mon, and interestingly a close collaborator in promoting the Irish language with Maureen's uncle, Owen McNeil, and professors Mary Macken and Professor Mary Macken, and Mary Macken and Mary Hayden were among the founding members of the National Council of Women. So this again highlights the interconnections between women's groups at this time. As an aside, I just wanted to say that I found this image um, of my grandmother um, and listed as president of the Graduates Association when I was researching my MA back in 1988 in the UCD archives. And that's when I discovered that my grandmother was involved in the groups I was working on, which really was one of those kind of rare magic archive moments. So the Women Graduates Association, was first established in 1902 and is perhaps best known for its activism during the 1920s and 1930s, campaigning against gender discrimination in the Irish Free State. 
The association set up an employment bureau for women graduates and spoke out in favour of equal opportunities in the civil service, where a marriage bar had been in operation since at least 1924. The Women Graduates Association, in conjunction with the National Council of Women and the Irish Women Citizens and Local Government Association, protested successfully against the 1925 Civil Service Amendment Bill, which sought to exclude women from taking exams to qualify for the higher grades of the civil service. The Women Graduates Association also played a leading role in protests against discriminatory articles in the 1937 Constitution. Joining forces once again with the National Council of Women and the Irish Women's Workers' Union and Joint Committee of Women's Societies and Social Workers, these groups were successful in ensuring voting rights for all citizens were guaranteed without distinction of sex in Articles 9 and 16 of the Constitution. They were not so successful in altering the wording of the now infamous Article 41.2, which states that a woman's primary duty is to work unpaid in the home. This clause remains in the Irish Constitution. However, following a Citizens' Assembly, which met in 1920 and again in 2021, the future of the article is currently under review by a special committee of TDs and senators chaired, chaired by Ivana Batlick. The second national organisation that Maureen was involved in during the 1950s was the Irish Country Women's Association, formerly known as the United Irish Women. Established in 1910, the ICA had up to 70 guilds in rural areas by the 1940s and a membership of, of over 2,000 women. The ICA represented rural women working in the home and on farms and saw itself as a women's movement that provided members with educational opportunities, friendship, leisure activities and skills training. It schooled its members in the vocabulary of citizenship through weekly lectures and talks on topical issues and encouraged women to get involved in local government and to campaign on issues impacting on women's lives, for example, the provision of school meals and local healthcare services. The ICA had close links to the National Council of Women, demonstrating once again the overlapping networks of female activism in the decades after 1922. In 1943, the ICA supported Hannah Sheehy Skeffington's unsuccessful campaign to be elected to the Dáil, um, and Hannah ran on an agenda of highlighting women's welfare and equality issues. And by the 1960s, the ICA had 498 guilds and some 15,000 members across the country. And of course, it continues to still be very active today. So my grandmother was a member of the ICA's Dublin Town Association and supported the work of the ICA in promoting women's educational opportunities with a particular focus on Irish language and, and literature. In 1953, she was elected vice chair of the ICA Residential Courses Subcommittee, later renamed the Green On Committee. It was this committee that oversaw the successful purchase with the financial support of the Callag Foundation and the opening of the ICA's residential college on Greenlawn in County Louth. And that's, you can see the beautiful building there on the slide. The new college was officially opened in October 1954 by the then president of Ireland, Mr. Sean T. O'Kelly. The college, modelled on the British Women's Institute movement, Stenden College, was the first residential adult education centre in Ireland. The new college provided women with the opportunity to engage in a range of educational courses, and of course, to have a break from the daily duties of home and family and work. So I want to conclude now by returning to that image 
of the fury, the harpy, the diehard and the hysterical woman, so frequently and vividly used to describe anti-treaty women in the early 1920s. I want to place that that image in sharp contrast with the life lived by my grandmother during the formative decades of the new Irish state. Despite her rejection of the treaty, she remained committed to providing educational opportunities to Irish citizens through her work as a teacher, examiner, adult educator, educator, and champion of Irish language and culture. Her active participation in national women's organizations is indicative of her lifelong dedication to enhancing the lives of women, especially with regards to their social and economic welfare. I've only told the story of one woman today who I was lucky enough to have as my grandmother. But there are many other stories out there about women who disagreed with the way in which the Irish Free State was established and with whom we might disagree. But we found, but, but these women found a way to participate and contribute in an impactful and positive way to Irish society. And one of the wonderful consequences of this decade of centenaries is that their stories can now also be told. Thank you. Thanks so much for that, Katrina. A really fascinating intertwining of the, the family story um, into the, the national picture um, and really interesting on sort of the, um, the, the lasting legacies for women's organisations um, in the 20th century and all the different places these, these women pop up. Um, we're now have some plenty of time for questions. Um, all of our speakers very much stuck to the, their allocated time. Um, so we have just over 30 minutes um, for some for Q&A. Um, so we have some questions um, submitted um, through the, the Q&A function, um, which I shall put to our panellists um, now. And um, But please feel free to, to keep submitting questions either through the chat or through the Q&A. Um, we've also had lots of um, praise from our um, attendees for all of your papers. Um, and it's great, um, I say, to have um, over 100 um, people um, 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 here for this um, for the live version of this of this paper and um, this session. Um, so um, first question we have here, um, I'll just bring it up on screen. Um, we have a question from um, Mel McGovern asking, do the Cumanaman women overseas make their views known to the structure in the debate, such as from the Glasgow section? Um, do any of you um, particularly wish to um, to answer this one? Uh, Mary, might have come up in your Markham Skinner research. I was going to say to, that uh, Mary would probably have uh, more information on the Glasgow one because all we have in terms of the minutes are that overseas branches were there. Um, so maybe Mary would be interested to hear what you have to say. Um, yes, I um, in, in looking at um, uh, the Margaret Skinner research, the um, Glasgow Common the, and Devlin Common did have um, anti-treaty stance. And they were against the treaty and, and Margaret more or less reflected their thoughts on the treaty and they would become very active during the Civil War. Um, they when when the four courts was being bombarded, Margaret Skinner actually becomes one of the senior organisers of the Cumanaman uh, auxiliary branch around the four courts. She sets up in one of the halls there. Um, and she is also in touch with the Andevlin branch of um, um, the Glasgow branch called Andevlin. And they are bringing over arms and ammunition uh, from Glasgow to Dublin. And at one stage, as the four courts is falling and they need to retreat back to the Hammond Hotel on O'Connell Street, Margaret meets up with three or four of the Glasgow women who have arrived with ammunition and arms. Um, um, 
takes over an ambulance. I don't know where she managed to get her hands on the ambulance, loads it up with the arms and ammunition and takes it to the Hammond Hotel. So there is constant uh, communication going back and forth across the Irish Sea between Glasgow uh, coming on and also the Glasgow, obviously the IRA and the Irish um, and, and uh, Republicans in Glasgow who are generally uh, anti-treaty um, and then support coming once the civil war breaks out. But the uh, yes, the Anne Devlin branch in um, Glasgow is anti-treaty. Great. Um, thanks for that, Mary. Um, we have a question then from Jared Shannon. Um, and he asks, are there many examples in communications in which Cumnamon clashed with the IRA, whether on leadership or on more grassroots level um, during the Civil War? And he says there's a fascinating exchange in Mostumi's papers between Liam Lynch and the Honorary Secretaries of Cumnamon over the death of seven-year-old Emmett McGarry in December 1922, in which Cumnamon complains the IRA is not using them enough for intelligence work, in this case in Dublin. Um, and then he says that um, great contributions from you all. Um, so does anyone want to um, take up that one, clashes between the Cumnamon and the IRA? I didn't know about that example. It's very interesting. But, um, you know, there were an awful lot of clashes during the War of Independence, which come up, you know, you can hit, see them in the convention reports. And, you know, there's a great press from people like Maura Comerford and Fiona Plunkett and Sheila Humphreys for them to be much more militarised so that they, you know, they would have a different relationship to um, the local IRA commander, that they would be much more autonomous. And at the same time, the IRA are complaining that um, they don't want to entrust information to women. They feel that it's too easy to recruit women into coming them on. They don't have to take an oath in the way that the IRA do. So that gets changed when that's brought to the convention and after that, Kamina uh, do take an oath. So that maybe has smoothed out some of the um, causes of friction that, that were there during the War of Independence. And um, what I would have thought during the Civil War, that there wouldn't have been that much um, scope for friction. I mean, the, the, the men were desperate to have the support of women. They were desperately outnumbered. They didn't have much equipment. And so that the work that women were doing and intelligence was was very a lot of the women who talk about their role in, in the in in the Civil War, like Leslie Barry or um, a whole lot, Eileen McGran. It is intelligence that they're about um, ethnic oil as well, a lot of them. So uh, it's very interesting to see that they feel that they're still not being used enough or that the IRA isn't, you know, given that they would need their help, isn't using them more. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, I was thinking, uh, Mary, in your paper, when you mentioned um, women um, for, for Cahill Brewer's funeral, that they were happy to have only women um, standing by by the coffin. Um, and it struck me, you know, and it's sort of an interesting that, um, you know, women were considered safe. Um, they could be trusted, you know, that they were on the side that they said that they were. Um, while at the same time, you know, women were obviously playing a very active role in the Civil War. Um, and yet there's still, you know, some sort of gender dynamics there going on about, um, you know, who is trustworthy or, you know, perhaps women, um, you know, willing to subvert what, they, what they've what they agreed to. Um, yeah, but I think we also have to look at um, um, the the debates and divisions that are going on within um, coming among themselves, particularly in places like Cork, and maybe Leanne might be able to talk more of that. I can't see if she's here, where the 
the women in, in Cork keep the title coming on, but they're pro-treaty. And then you have this big fight between Lil Conlon and the pro-treaty coming on and Mary McSweeney and the anti-treaty coming on. And I think it's important to keep that in mind as well. Like uh, the, the, the branches split. And um, I think Margaret mentioned that Ethna Coyle uh, says that some of the branches were of no use anymore because they'd actually not, they'd taken a pro-treaty stance. And you can see that in some of the research I've done in Kerry as well. A lot of the anti or the pro-treaty women are now neutral or have been forced out of the branches. And, and if you look at the lists um, of coming among members that are up in the military archive site, and you have lists in 1921 and then in 1922, and you can see the numbers are going down. So uh, it's very obvious that there is um, tension within the branches as well and not and, and, and not trusting each other. So you need to get those you don't trust out. So it's it's both between coming among and the regular IRA and also within coming among, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and just on the, the divisions, we have, a, we have a question here from anonymous attendee. Um, pointing out that um, you know we talk, we've talked about the divisions that were lifelong, such as those between Nell Ryan and Kathleen Brown. Um, but um, this um, um, questioner is asking: Are there any instances of friends from different sides that treated debates in civil war who reconciled or collaborated on political endeavours after the end of the civil war, such as on the nineteen thirty seven constitution debate or the marriage bar, for example? Um, do any of you want to come in on this one? Jan, do you have any um, examples? Well, somebody like Mary McSweeney wouldn't get involved at all in the discussion about the 1937 Constitution because she, of course, didn't recognise the free state. Um, I, something I think that's really interesting in the context of her as well, uh, in terms of lifelong splits, is that she obviously refused to recognise the state, so she didn't write any reference for any member of the court coming to mind, which I wonder whether that put some of those women at a disadvantage. Um, so even if actually the women were pro or uh, were anti-treaty, she still wouldn't actually um, write a reference and it, it did elongate the process for some of those women. So I think there's kind of like all sorts of nuances around different, as Mary said, different kind of forms of splits. And, and I think the implication going on is really important to think about as well. Um, I can just add on that one for Noah as well. So um, my grandmother's great friend, Joa Hearn, who she mentions in her witness statement to the Military Bureau of Archives, the two of them wandering around Dublin and, and, and engaging these kind of activities, she later married um, James McNeil, the first governor general, and becomes um, Joe McNeil. I've got those names right. Sorry, I always get, correct me if I'm wrong. So later, I, I noticed in both the, the documents I had for the ICA and for the National University of Rome Graduates Association, both in the 1950s, by coincidence, I have two handbooks that I got from my grandmother's stash of documents. They both mention hosting Joe um, McNeil at various events. So she, And she was uh, on the executive of the ICA in 1950. She might have been the president, sorry, I can't remember, but you know, they're very involved. So so um, I, I think they remained friends. It's, it's difficult to tell, but I think they still remained friends. They certainly didn't become enemies. And then um, I know that my cousin, who I think is here, um, um, Eamon Okiso, he mentioned that um, he felt he thought that my um, grandmother stayed quite friendly um, with uh, Ginny Wise Power as well in, in the aftermath. So, um, so I think it was possible to maintain, not in all cases, but probably a different kind of friendship but still some, a, a friendship nonetheless. 
I, I think um, it's interesting that Mary McSweeney, who fell out really, really heavily with Dorothy McCardle, um, not over the issue of the split, because uh, Dorothy McCardle would have been anti-treaty as well, but fell out over the issue of uh, being a Um Mary McSweeney still was willing to actually give uh, Dorothy McCardle the Irish Republicans prize um, at the end of the year on St. Eat was uh, one of the one of the kind of, uh, one of the prize givings. So that although they were really, really kind of lifelong after after the Fianna Fáil um, establishment of Fianna Fáil lifelong kind of antagonist, she still had that kind of you know, ability to be somewhat magnanimous. Maura Comerford mentions in her memoirs that she's about to go to America and she's been smuggled under an assumed name and she's on board the ship and which is going to England as far as, and then she's getting the ship to America. But Josephina Hearn is, is on that with her husband. And, um, you know, Moore is trying to keep a very low profile and she's down in, you know, I don't know, second, third class. And they're up in some suite and Josephine insists on bringing her up and making a big fuss of her. And when they get off in England, she's still with her, even though Moore is trying to maintain a low profile. So I don't know if Josephine Hearn was simply... Um, a very gregarious person, or she didn't sort of take a side there, but it, it, it surprised Maura, who kind of just had to go along with it because she didn't draw want to draw attention to herself. She, Maura also said when I was speaking to her that um, that uh, Mabel Fitzgerald had to take a, didn't take a pro-treaty side, but it was in a very difficult position because Desmond Fitzgerald, her husband, did and as Maura said, she crossed the bridge very reluctantly, but would meet people for coffee and Bewley's. You know, yeah. some women had really difficult positions because they might not have been on one side, but their, their male member, family, husband or whatever, were. So there were those women who were caught in between as well. I think um, there's some material in um, Gareth Fitzgerald's um, memoir about his parents and um, you know, their um how they sort of negotiated their differing political views. Um, and you know, just um, you know, what what were acceptable topics um on the dinner table and so forth. Um, but yeah, certainly, certainly a challenge for for Mabel um at that time and a balancing um between trying to um yeah, maintain friendships um while also maintaining the marriage. Um we have a question here um from Margaret um saying that you mentioned that Cumnamon members from Northern Ireland were not listed by name. Are there examples of members of either Cumnamon or Cumnasirsha from the North who suffered repercussions as a result of, of their participation in the convention? Is this something you've come across? Um, I don't know who was there for the convention, so I can't say I can, you know, that there were Cumnamon members who were arrested because of their activities um, after that time in 1922 and 1923, for example, Rose Black arrested in 1923. Uh, um, Winifred Carney was arrested in August 1922, but, you know, Winifred Carney was no longer in Cumberland at that time, So, but she was active as a Republican in Belfast. So it's very difficult to know, and it's very frustrating to know that even during the War of Independence Convention, all you get is, you know, in the minutes is the Northern Delegate except for Kay Brady. She's the only one. She's from Belfast, one of the three Brady sisters who are very active, but she's really based in Dublin then, so I think it feels freer to be able to identify herself. So that's one of the huge frustrations in trying to look at women in the North. 
We have a couple of questions actually about sources that I might come to um, now. Um, a couple of people have been asking about um, where they might find records of Cumulus Ayrshire branches um, and membership. Um, and um, another question specifically about um, Cumulus Ayrshire in North Tipperary. Um, and then um, Lisa McDermott had a question in the chat um, asking if um, Una Brennan, Catherine Rooney or Mary McLaughlin, any of her friends from 1916, um, have appeared in any of your, your research. Um, and also wondering if Helen Lytton has given any papers in, on Kathleen Clark in this period. Um, I think she did at the 2014 conference, possibly. Um, but if any of you want to um, have any advice on, on sources um, and if any of these, these women popped up in your um, research. Actually, the newspapers are great for coming to Saoirse. That has been a, um, a great way of, of yeah, there's all sorts of um, descriptions of meetings they've had, of fundraisers they're engaged in. And here's, I just have one here, is a fundraiser. So we have a list of women, um, uh, Miss A. Friend in Killarney, uh, H. Withers in Hampstead, uh, Miss Hogan in Dublin, Gavin Duffy, obviously, but other names I don't recognise, uh, B. Farrell in Tremor, Foynes, Booterstown, Bray, Killarney, Killarney, Fairview, and numerous other small uh, um, um members sent in. So if you go through the newspaper, if you have access to the Irish newspaper archives, you can find because they are calling out for subscriptions. And so sometimes you get lists of names that are sending in subscriptions and you've then names of supporters. But because Come on the Search only lasts um, two years at the most, it's dissolved by um, December 1923. There isn't a huge amount of material there. We have their, their uh, propaganda um, material, the canvassing, there are some images in the newspapers of, of dances and Kayleys and all that sort of thing. And then we have names and memoirs where you have that interaction between Cumann Amman women and Cumann the Searsha or between the men in the National Army and Cumann the Searsha. Um, and uh, you just have to layer on. So there's no, no one particular source uh, about Cumann the Searsha. And in, ma in many ways, like Margaret men, uh, talks about it in Unmanageable Revolutionaries, as does Cal McCarthy. But it is an organisation that um, actually deserves, I, I've written one article on it, but it deserves uh, much more um, investigation. And I see somebody said that many members of Common Searsha remain political after 1937. Well, it dissolves in 1923, but many of the women, as I said, you know, Senator Jenny Wise Power, Senator Kathleen Brown, Senator uh, Eileen Costello remain really active throughout the uh, first two decades of the Irish Free State. And many of them are married. And, and Margaret, you talked about that in, in Unmanageable Revolutionaries. Many of the women who were in Communist Ayrshire were the wives of the leaders of the national government or the army, like Min Mulcahy, um, um, Arthur Griffith's wife uh, and others. So they are well-connected women and they are continuing in, in many ways, like Katrina's grandmother, to be involved in all these different organisations that are interconnected but also that are part of the political, uh, uh, political, uh, I suppose, scene of the Irish Free State. We might move to a question here from Hilary Dully. Um, he asks, do the panellists feel the marginalisation of women from this period of Irish history in later decades is related to the rejection of the treaty by Cumann Amman and the subsequent activities of some members during the Civil War? Um, I'm happy to pick up on that one. I think, yeah, it's one of the factors, but there's many other factors too. So it, it's part of a kind of a tapestry of 
of different reasons why women in many cases felt ended up in a kind of hostile environment in the uh, first decades of the Irish Free State. So it didn't help, I don't think. And you can you can tell that from the language that was used, you know, this very actually very reminiscent of the same language that was used against militant suffrage campaigners, you know, this idea of the harpy and the diehard and the fury, a very similar language and imagery was used against um, um, militant campaigners. So any kind of women acting out of the kind of normative behaviour expected for women at this time it was unsettling and threatening and therefore produced a reaction that was quite hostile. But I think the other factors um, are you know, particularly the uh, Catholic social teaching, very traditional conservative rural society, and the economic factors around you know, scarcity of, of, of male jobs, all of those factors all together, all those ingredients created that kind of uh, not great situation for women in, in the new state. I think also we need to think of um, poverty and, you know, the difficulties that women had who were, were on the anti-treaty side you know, I'm just taking Maura Comerford as an example because her terrific memoir is published now. But she talks about, you know, scraping a living, uh, trying to set up a poultry farm in County Wexford and how little money she says. She says, you know, that, um, you know, she was so malnourished that she said she just didn't have the energy. And when she did have enough money to put some petrol in her motorbike and go up to Dublin, that was rare, you know. So women, moved out of um, be, being involved in the political sphere, you know, a lot of them. And those that stayed in Kamenamon, like um, Sheila Humphreys and Ethna Coyle, were really hidebound by the, by the constitution of the organisation because they were supposed to be there as an auxiliary to the men. And as Ethna said to me, but if the men weren't doing anything, we didn't have a role. And you can see them in the in the 1930s in particular, trying to have a role, trying to develop some kind of socialist critique of the Irish state. But because, like um, Leanne would say with Mary McSweeney, because they couldn't recognise state structures, they couldn't get involved in any of the other movements that Katrina's talked about, of women getting together to, to fight against the misogynistic laws. Kamenaman felt that that would have been um, something completely outside of their, their constitution. So in that sense, a lot of them became irrelevant to the struggles of, of women day to day. In that, on that note, I just think it would be kind of interesting just to think about the fact that Mary McSweeney, yes, she wasn't actually participating in any, as you say, Margaret, of those debates around the position of women in the state, but she was actually educating uh, women in Scolita, which was a very progressive school in Cork. And she was very proud of the fact that uh, quite a number of the girls in the school went on to third level education. Um, so that a bit like uh, Katrina's grandmother, she was not a treaty, but she was actually contributing uh, to, to society uh, and contributing to kind of furthering the position of women in society, albeit in a kind of roundabout way. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of women as well, like Elizabeth O'Farrell and, and Julia Grennan, who both rejected the treaty and the free state and never recognised. So we've no Bureau of Military History witness statement, no pension applications from them. And yet through their contributions as, you know, Elizabeth working as a midwife, they are contributing and helping um, with with poverty and, and, and working to help those who are, I suppose, the most marginalised within 
the Irish Free State. And yet the recognition of that work doesn't happen un until much uh, later after their deaths and only until, you know, um, a kind of a retrieval of their life stories. And these afterlives, which are very interesting, and I thought Katrina's uh, um, paper was fascinating to see that afterlife. Although I, I, one question I had, if I can pose to you, um, is I'm surprised your grandmother didn't join the Irish Housewives Association other, rather than the um, ICA because she was based in the city. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It, it, it is a puzzle. And, you know, considering she identified as a housewife on her passport when she, in, in, when she was in her 60s. So, yeah, I know unless she did and we don't know. I mean, as I say, the, I, the, the information I have on her is very fragmentary and there's an awful lot of gaps. And, I'm, and I've all for years I've been saying I wanted to do some more work on her. And then this opportunity that you presented me with, Mary, it was just brilliant. I haven't enjoyed anything so much in years. So I really do hope to be able to actually do more digging and, and find out and perhaps see if, you know, who knows, maybe there are, because I haven't looked and I don't know if anyone else has. So, yeah, I'm, I'll let you know. <laughs> I think we would all love to see, um, you know, your paper written up um, um, with um, some more of those wonderful photographs um, as well. Um, so much, so much rich material in there. Um, we have a couple of questions um, about um, post-Civil um, War um, experiences that sort of relate to what we've been talking about here. Um, so I might just put them together. Um, we have a question from Barbara Landstreet um, asking, how did the situation in society and the constraints on women change after the Civil War? Um, and specifically, how did women's civic communities clash with the clerical institutions? Um, and we had a question um, um, here. Do, we, do you think that the experience of women in post-revolutionary Ireland and the early years of free state reflects the experience of women in other countries and societies that experienced the turmoil of civil war in the 20th century? Um, so do any of you want to um, come in on, on either of those or both of those? International context and... I'm, I'm, I'm happy to speak to just on the, the relationship between these women's organisations and um, kind of clerical authorities and state authorities. So, yeah, they, they have to be very flexible. As all of the groups I mentioned, this is a lot of my more substantive work that I've done is, is on these women's organisations post-1922. And they, have, they, they, they used a number of strategies in order to survive in what I've already described as a hostile envi environment, which I very much think... Uh, the 1920s, 30s, 40s and 50s in Ireland was for women and even a wee bit longer. So what, so they grouped together, they, they organised into networks, which was very effective in order to sort of this idea of strength and numbers. But they also accepted that they had to work within the system of Irish um, conservatism and particularly kind of a, a Catholic dominated society. And many of them were practising Catholics, you know, so, so they, you know, that was their faith. But they, they did have to compromise. I remember doing an interview with um, Kathleen Delap of the ICA and she told me that um, they had to be, they couldn't discuss birth control. Now, obviously, the more middle class members of the ICA were uh, new and had knew how were able to go to their private GP and get information and, and tips on on birth control. But, uh, but people who couldn't afford to do that couldn't. But they couldn't discuss that in the ICA in, in, except privately as friends because they wouldn't. If they did so, the Catholic parish priest who who controlled the space in which they met, which was often the village hall. Or, he would he would ban them, and um, so they just could. So there was no point. So they they compromised in a quite a pragmatic and logical way. So it was compromise. It was compromise and unifying smaller groups together, and they just kept going, which is really so impressive and why I'm so fascinated by them. 
I'd just like to put in a word for women in the north. Um, I'm trying to find out more of what they did. And um, looking at the British feminist press, the votes and women's leader, because they sometimes had reports on what women were doing north and south. Um, Dora Malone, who had been a non-militant suffragist who worked with Louis Bennett, had moved from the north down to County Dublin. Quite a few women did. I think they they weren't necessarily um, anti-treaty or anything like that, just found the north a difficult place. But she talks about the Belfast Women's Citizens Association and the Londonderry Women's uh, Citizens Association um, and the kind of things that they're trying to do in terms of child welfare, um, provision of milk or school meals, things that you know women have been doing uh, and and organizing about for decade after decade in Ireland, um, trying to get the, the new Northern government to um, pass legislation that was going through, say, Westminster, like the Infanticide Act, looking at illegitimate children and the role of fathers. I would presume that similar things were happening in the 26 counties as well, in terms of that very much kind of welfareism approach that women had. And because there was very little they could do in terms of the wider political sphere at that time. Local government in the north was certainly not a place that women went to after the unionist abolished PR and put in the oath of allegiance, for example. So nationalist women didn't have any of those kinds of arenas. Um, it was very difficult for them. So I think it was mainly women who would have been more pro-unionist at that stage were active. So when we're talking about women and what they, they do, I'd like to also, you know, across the border, it was even more difficult for women to, to organise around anything at all. Yeah, um, uh, just to say at the moment, I'm going through the Kathleen Lynn um, diaries in this period going on into the Irish Free State, and you can see um, really what you've described there, Katrina, of, of a collaborative effect of all of these women's organisations and what they're dealing with is education, poverty, social housing, um, the healthcare, all of that sort of thing. The things at local level, I think national politics has now um, really locked them out in some ways. Um, and so a lot of the women spend their time or, or, or get involved in education like Mary McSweeney. Um, or in healthcare like Kathleen Lynn. Um, but at a, at a local level, you have Gobnath Nivruzer down in, in South Kerry setting up a fever hospital. Uh, and so they have these initiatives going on all around the country, um, just sort of counteracting what is a, a, a really poor state um, with where the position of women is, is pretty awful, but also where if they can do something about it at a local level, they do try to do something about it. So they do remain active. And one of my favourite images is actually of, of early 1950 is of the old coming Amman marching in Tralee uh, for women's rights. So you can see they have remained engaged and they have remained active. Um, but they are, you know, they are dealing within the context of a very conservative theocratic in many ways state and there are things they can't do anything about but what they can do things about they do they do try and you have to admire them I mean the fortitude to keep going for many many decades must have been amazing absolutely yeah 
Um, and so many, you know, um, some of the individual organizations, you know, might have um, reached an endpoint or splintered, but so many, you know, these women pop up in other places and join other networks. And, um, you know, often we have a sort of narrative of, you know, after 1922, sort of feminism disappears and for several decades. Um, and, you know, sort of very bleak um, pictures in the 1920s and 30s for women's um, for women's rights. Um, but, you know, these things can all be all be complicated. We are um, running out of time, um, but we might just get to um, we had a question earlier um, from Julie Crowley, just asking about the importance of nursing and caregiving provided by Cumberland and whether this was acknowledged sufficiently afterwards, um, both in relation to the civil war, but also the war of independence. Do any of you want to come in briefly on that? Yeah, I, I think it is very much acknowledged that the nursing and caregiving that the women gave during the War of Independence, and perhaps to a lesser degree during the Civil War, although you, with the new pension files out now, we can see they are still doing a lot of that. It was very important, you know, it, it an army needs its um, food and it needs its health care um, and it needs its safe houses. And that's what they did provide, along with everything else that they did. Um, and of course, you know, um, uh, on the run, IRA members could not go to hospitals if they were injured or wounded. So what coming among women did. And I know, for example, in Dublin, they set up um, stations up around Ticknock, up in the Dublin mountains. Uh, and so they have secure locations in which they can nurse people as well as safe houses. And so it's vital. And it was it was vitally important. Yeah. And dangerous work. And dangerous work. Yeah. <laughs> Um, we also, um, um, Alison Bone has been, um, who is um, sent from Ada English, has been asking um, questions about um, how, how she managed to get to Japan um, to recuperate from her imprisonment in Galway Jail during the War of Independence. That sounds like a story that needs to be written. Um, so perhaps if, if any of our speakers do have any possible sources or suggestions for Alison, perhaps they can contact um, her directly. Um, yeah, Alison is talking there about passports I and mean, you have the introduction of passports around this time because I know Rosamond Jacob was looking for a passport um, kind of uh, around the end around the period of the uh, end of the war of independence uh, or truce period and uh, she did kind of find it difficult to actually get one because she was on some type of a list but it's around that time passports are coming in yeah and, and there are passport application in the war office papers yeah. But I don't know if one from Aiden English is in there. Yeah, yeah, there can be quite a um, fascinating source actually. Um, this period, um, we have had a couple of questions just about the availability of the recording of this um, afterwards. So um, it will go up on the History Hub um, website, um, um, where um, lots of um, similar um, um, recordings are available, um, and it will also be broadcast on Aractus, um TV. Um, I just want to um, echo um, all the comments in the chat um, just on how um, really excellent these, these papers have all been. Um, it, um, as many of our um, attendees have said, you know, it's been really quite moving um, listening to these, these women's experiences. Um, and I think it's a really important um, um, just, you know, um, way of thinking about, about this period and um, perhaps, you know, revising of some of our preconceptions um, about what women did or didn't do um, during this period, a necessary complicating perhaps of the narrative. Um, so thank you all very much for that. I'm just going to hand over to Mary to give say the final word. Thank you, Fanula. And I just want to um, echo my thanks to all of you uh, for coming along today and, and to uh, participating in the talks and in the question and answers. I want to especially thank Fanula for 
chairing the session and um, making sure we keeping us on our toes and making sure um, you know the question and answer session flowed. And uh, and the minute I asked her, she said yes. And I'm particularly thankful to the three speakers um, who came along and gave such wonderful papers. Um, I hope my own was of the same standard as well. But I think from what everyone is saying, everybody seems to have enjoyed it. I really want to thank Mike Liffey from History Hub, considering the experience I had earlier in the week for keeping us all safe and sound in this webinar uh, and for organising. And of course, Mike will put it up on History Hub and Oroctus TV will also get a edited version of this from Mike and it will be broadcast on Oroctus TV. But I will let everybody know. Uh, and I saw people were asking, this will remain on History Hub, so you can go back to it and listen into the talks again if you think you, you, man you missed um, material. Um, I want to thank UCDC Decadive Centenary Seed Funding for the, um, I was going to say nearly the use of the hall, but actually the grant of the money. Uh, and to uh, my partners in this, the Women's History Association of Ireland, of which I'm a longstanding and very proud member and ex-president and the Centre for Gender, Feminisms and Sexualities here at UCD. Um, and I suppose in bringing it to a close, just thank you all very much. Um, this was to uh, fill in a void where a commemoration of the split in Cumann should have been organised, I would argue, by um, government or, or those who are organising this sort of thing. Uh, this was a vitally important moment in Irish women's history and in revolutionary history. But I think we have more than filled that spot uh, and this will remain on record. So thank you all for the speakers. Thank you all to the attendees. And I hope you all have a really good weekend. Thank you, Mary. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Women's History Association of Ireland. You can listen to other podcasts in the WHAI on Spotify, Apple and on History Hub.